politics of moving migrants. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the conversation. I'm David Schuster. Thanks for joining us. It has now been a few weeks since Florida Governor Ron DeSantis flew more than 50 migrants from Texas to Martha's Vineyard, an island off the coast of Massachusetts. A lot of Republicans were happy with this move. In fact, Donald Trump embraced it, and Mitch McConnell said it should happen more often. So with so many Republicans lining up in terms of using migrants as human props, what does that really mean politically? And what, if anything, should Democrats be doing about this? Well, here to talk about it is Calvin Dark. He's a Democratic strategist. He's also the co-founder of RC Communications. Uh, Calvin, thanks for being with us. Have you been surprised by the Republican reaction? Unfortunately, no. It, it um, just echoes the principles behind the policies that they've been pushing for the last few years. You know, it's it's cruel and inhumane. And I think we all remember that uh, four years ago, uh, 2018, it was a similar situation. It was the caravans. You know, for the two, three weeks before the um, elections, the caravans were coming. And of course, we didn't hear anything else about them after it. So. It's a different situation, but unfortunately the same values and messaging. And some of the messaging from Republicans is that they are so delighted to see sanctuary cities now somehow getting migrants that they weren't expecting. So there's an anger not just towards the migrants, but towards the people who welcome them with with open arms. Yes, because I think that the sanctuary cities, apart from where you know, you, what, whatever you may think about our immigration system, I think the principle behind sanctuary cities is what America is founded on. You know, being a welcoming place, and I think this whole um, idea of you know trolling democratic cities, you know, shaming supposedly sanctuary cities. Um, it's unfortunate because it has immigrants at the at the heart of it. But what I was pleased with was if you take the example with Martha's Vineyard, um, where it was an attempt to troll and shame them with the sanctuary cities. These people actually came together and provided um, you know necessary services and resources for these immigrants, which that backfired um, from Governor DeSantis. So that did make me feel good. Yeah, I mean, there are a number of Republicans who said, oh, the Democrats wouldn't, you know, sanctuary cities wouldn't do anything when these people actually got there. And in fact, no people rallied around to support these people and make sure that they had a warm place to, to sleep and food to eat. We know that politically, obviously, this is a winner for, I guess, conservatives, the right wing. Uh, Democrats, I think, are justifiably uh, uh, hating sort of what Republicans are doing. But where does this cut politically in the middle with moderate and independent voters? Well, I think it's gonna cut two ways. Um, I think the primary cut is going to be how these, um, you know, using these migrants as pawns, how that reflects our principles and values as Americans. And I would think that there are more Americans, particularly independents, people in the middle, that would see that this totally um, does not uh, go along with our values and principles. But, but the other way that it cuts, and this is gonna hurt the Democrats, is we haven't heard an articulated solution in the face of this crisis, which you know I think we should have. I understand that there's only so much you can put out before the midterm elections. I understand that the White House is gonna be putting out something, I think, after the elections. But I think that actually might be a handicap for Democratic candidates because there hasn't been an articulated strategy of exactly how to fix our broken immigration system. 
And without that articulated strategy, I mean, you talk to Republicans and they perceive that the door that the door is wide open, that the border is wide open to anybody who wants to cross. And there doesn't seem to be any sort of even pushback yet from sort of the Democrats as to no, we are trying to control immigration. What should the proper immigration policy be, both in terms of its morality, but also in terms of the politics? Well, I think for me, and you know, I've actually I'm from North Carolina, but I have lived and studied in three continents. And so I've been on the receiving end of how immigrants are treated. And I would expect just as the countries that I lived in, how I followed a process, that we should have a process here too. But now it should be a process that's funded and staffed so that it's realistic. So I think that you know, give people who are already here, particularly the dreamers, a pathway to citizenship and you know, have a process that's workable, doesn't have years waiting in line for those who want to come here and an asylum and refugee system that is also workable. Now, there's one more element to it, which is really complicated and that's border security. Mm-hmm. And I, I think this is both Democrats and Republicans that I blame, more so the Republicans and I'll tell you why, with the Democrats, because of you know the former president's let's build the wall, a lot of Democratic candidates have shied away from uh, talking about border security, at, you know, strengthening the border with because under the last administration, it was so closely tied to ideas that were racist and and xenophobic. Um, so, but I do I do blame Democrats for not articulating that better. But with Republicans, I blame their rhetoric on immigration because of course, you know, they're always talking about build the wall, um, strengthen our border, but they do so in a way that reinforces that xenophobia and that racism and they don't have anything after it. Because even Americans who think our border should be more secure, don't think that we should build the wall and close the door, which is the only thing that I can gather Republicans have a plan to do. It also feels like a lot of Americans felt even if you support border security, there should not be this family separation policy that we saw during the last administration. That seemed to be sort of bipartisan outrage that people were being kept in cages and separated. It seems like the Biden administration has, has tackled that somewhat. But again, we haven't heard much about it. Exactly, and um, it, that's unfortunate because we know, even though uh, the situation there are peaks and you know lows. Of course, during the COVID um, pandemic, there was obviously you know changes in the pace of migration, and it's picked up. We should be out there saying two things at once. You know that we have the principles that you mentioned that don't separate families, that don't do some of the horrible things that we saw during the last administration, but that also we're looking to fix this problem for those people who are here and those people who want to come. I personally am proud to live in a country where people are wanting to get here. And I honestly think that the immigrants that are coming, if we had a process that worked and was workable and reasonable, they would go through it. There was a period about, and I guess going back to the Obama administration, when it seemed like there was a bipartisan comprehensive immigration bill that, you know, I guess they called it the group of 12, the gang of 12 senators came together and then it fell apart in large part, I think, for politics. Have we gone away now permanently from the opportunity when Democrats and Republicans can put aside whatever provincial political issues they have and come together with some sort of bipartisan solution? Or have things become so partisan in Washington that now it's impossible to get that kind of compromise? 
you know, I had to go back and remind myself of that um, proposed compromise or pr proposed bipartisan partnership that you um, uh, just mentioned because think about that today. That doesn't even seem like it could be something that would be possible. And I think the reason is, and this is unfortunate, is that after the Obama administration, when we started talking about what can we do, you know, deal with the dreamers, to deal with our asylum system for refugees, the immigration system got tied to crime. It got tied to disease. It got tied to every ill that some people in some states, some leaders did not want to find real solutions for. And I think what's going to be hard is you do have some Republicans who are willing to work on, you know, common sense immigration reform with Democrats. However, the problem is that too much of it has been joined to crime and these other issues that it makes it hard for people who are in the middle to take a stand to support immigration reform because of what their constituents have been told that that means. I wonder if there's a level of frustration also among so many constituents, voters across the country. When we were talking to people at a Trump rally the other week, a number of people said, look, we feel badly for the people who are crossing the border and all the hardships they're going through. But they love the idea, these Trump supporters love the idea that, yeah, maybe we should dump these migrants next to the White House or in a democratic city. Not so much because they, they were mad at the migrants, but they just wanted some attention to this issue. And it, and it feels like maybe there's some political power and leverage there. I think so, and I, and I think that um, regardless of where voter, most voters stand on the issue of immigration, I, I think that the political stunts, um, particularly you know, with shipping people to outside of Vice President Harris's uh, residence at rush hour, I mean that's trolling. That's not that's not leadership. And you know, I have um, friends in Florida, and my second or third reaction was, why is Governor DeSantis spending my friend's tax money displacing people from a state that's not his? I think most reasonable people realize that's not a solution. It's political, um, using people as political pawns, and doesn't help us solve the problem. Any idea how this is cutting politically among Latinos in particular? Are they just as horrified as, as a lot of Americans are when they see people being used as props or do they have a different perspective? I think that's gonna be interesting because one of the things we have to keep in mind is that the Latino community, the people who are you know Latino Americans and, and those who are refugees or immigrants here, it's very diverse depending on where they're coming from. Um, I think it's really interesting how the particular um, migrants that DeSantis was you know, sending to Martha's Vineyard um, were from Venezuela. I mean, it's a different community. I would hope that the Latino community would see that this does not benefit them. I'll tell you as an African American, I often feel too when I see these things, it's against brown people. you know. And so I'm, I'm worried they're not sending me anywhere because I was born here, but that that feeds into the racism and xenophobia that we've seen. And so I, I hope that the Latino community will not um, uh, support this and that we'll see that at the um, ballot box in November. Yeah, I mean, I think the way this is gonna cut politically is gonna be intriguing because look, it's a, it's a high profile moment when you are able to move migrants and it's a political stunt. And yes, these people's lives, they're being used as props, but Republicans seem gleeful over the, the, the images that they're able to create with this. And so we'll see how it cuts politically. Uh, Calvin Dark, he's a Democratic strategist, co-founder of RC Communications. Calvin, thanks for joining us, we appreciate it. Good to be here. You got it.
Welcome back to The Conversation, I'm David Schuster. The Guardian has just published a new report that has found that hundreds of thousands of residents in the city of Chicago, Illinois could be drinking water that has enough toxic lead in it to cause serious health concerns. The two reporters behind this story are with us now, Erin McCormick, she's an independent data reporter for The Guardian and Taylor Moore, she's a freelance journalist in Chicago. Erin, I wanna start with you, what did the data show, what did you find? Uh, well, it, it showed very concerning amounts of lead in the water. Uh, about one in 20 homes had uh, more lead in its drinking water than is allowed by the Environmental Protection Agency. And about a third of the tests we looked at showed levels above what is allowed for bottled water in the US. And federal officials have said that no amount of lead is safe. Uh, what's more alarming is the huge number of homes in Chicago that are connected to the water system with lead pipes. There's 400,000 homes in Chicago with lead service lines. That's about 80% of the housing stock. And uh, if, if our results held for that whole population, that would be a, a very large number of people drinking low levels of lead. And Taylor, Taylor, for all the you know the, the thoughts that a lot of us have about cities like Flint, Michigan, which had the water crisis, we don't think of Chicago as being a city that has sort of decrepit pipes and lead water problems. Were there specific neighborhoods that you found that this was happening more in? Yeah, we um, we found that um, the uh, prevalence of lead pipes was um, common, especially um, in low-income Black and Brown neighborhoods across the city. Um, nine of the top ten. Zip codes. Um, Aaron found that um, they had. Aaron found that um, nine of the top ten zip codes um, with the most lead um, were um, neighborhoods on the south and west sides of the city, um, which are majority Black and majority Latino. What's been the reaction from those communities and also city leaders to your reporting? Um, there's a lot of frustration uh, with the city. Um, you know, um, advocates. Um, the um, media here, um, residents have known this has been a problem for for years. Um, and you know, Chicago, um, you know, was installing lead pipes um, in the city um, up until 1986, uh, which is decades after most cities had already outlawed the use of lead pipes. Um, so it's been a problem for a long time, and um, I think um, people are really fed up um, with um, you know this public health crisis that's not being taken very seriously. Um, by by the city. And Aaron, it seems like a clear public health crisis, obviously for Chicago. But how common uh, is this thing, or can we make any projections about how common this may be in other cities that have similar lead piping structures? Yeah, it's not just a Chicago story; it's a it's a national story. Uh, the Nat Natural Resources uh, Defense Council has estimated that up to 11 million homes in the U.S. have these lead pipes. Uh, Chicago at least has run these tests for residents showing what you know might be in the water. But a lot of these places, we don't know what these people are drinking. And many cities don't even know uh, where the lead pipes are in their cities. And Aaron, I, I seem to remember that the Biden 2021 infrastructure bill was supposed to address at least some of this. But I, I gather that the resources that were put in that bill are simply not enough to deal with a, a large majority of this. Well, it's true that they that they won't be enough, but those resources have just been able, just been starting to get out there. 
so the money is now flowing to the states and the cities to start doing this work. But it's gonna really take a major effort for these cities to mobilize to actually get these pipes out of the ground. And in fact, Chicago, we found has only gotten 180 of its 400,000 lead service lines removed thus far. Taylor, the, the people who are most um, susceptible to, to lead poisoning, those would be uh, younger people, children primarily? Yeah, um, lead is a neurotoxin. There's no safe um, level of consumption of lead. Um, lead can lead to lower IQs, behavioral disorders, um, intellectual disorders. Um, and in adults, can, it can also lead to kidney problems, um, increased blood pressure. Um, and this also um, is exacerbated um, for pregnant women. Taylor, what uh, tipped off you and Aaron in terms of uh, be pursuing this story in the first place? Um, I think Aaron can speak to that. Aaron, what the yeah, I mean, we've been looking all around the country at some of the issues that are coming up uh, with lead, and I had heard from some of the experts in this area at that you know that, that these lead service lines are going to be a huge push for our nation to get rid of, and Chicago has the, the highest number, so. When we talk about, for example, the city of Flint in Michigan, was that a very expensive fix? I mean, putting aside obviously the settlements and the payments of the families, but just in terms of the infrastructure, is that a very expensive haul? You know, it's expensive for any city. And I think that's why the Biden administration has been pushing so hard to at least start to address it with the infrastructure funds. Uh, you know, like Flint and and many other cities. It, in fact, uh, Jackson, Mississippi, also has a big lead problem. In addition to the water problem that turned off the water there to residents for something like a month just recently. Um, but there are many cities around the nation with these problems, and uh, they they don't have the resources. It's going to cost a lot, and it's going to take uh, you know real action from those city governments even to make take advantage of the federal money. Taylor, you're a freelance journalist in Chicago. Chicago has always struck me as a very a proud city that it's a, it's got a lot of pride and community pride in how it does things. Um, it feels like this must be something of a huge sort of jolt to, to residents there to have a city that is as modern and, and lovely as Chicago to suddenly realize they're dealing with something this terrible. Yeah, absolutely. I think that um, I think the problem has been known for many years, but I think also our investigation helped bring it to brought this issue to the forefront. Um, you know, raising it to the level of this is a national emergency. This is something that you know we should um, all care about in the city um, and across the country. Um, this lead problem is not unique to Chicago, um, but it is um, one of the the worst. Um, and in the city too, um, I think there um, there is a lot of frustration with. Um, the um, lack of movement um, in replacing these lead pipes. Um, there's, um, you know, the the mayor mayor Lightfoot um, cites, um, you know, the the cost, the bureaucracy of um, uh, replacing these 400,000 lead pipes. Um, but there, um, you know, it's, it's still a lot of frustration, and um, you know, it, the Chicago does pride itself on. Um, you know, but it's proximity to Lake Michigan and and the, it's fresh water there, so um, it, it is a blow to um, for people living, um, you know, just like a couple miles away from the lake to not actually have clean water in their homes. 
Aaron, a lot of people across the country are hearing this are probably thinking, oh my God, what about you know the water where I am? Um, is there any predictability in terms of the type of infrastructure, the type of systems that can then predict whether or not a, a city municipality is gonna have to be dealing with something similar like this? Well, the lead is at the individual homes. So you may have clean water coming uh, through the mains to the, the home. Or, or to just outside the home, but the, the smaller pipe that carries the lead from the, the water main to the home, uh, it may be made of lead. And, uh, and, and so people can check their connections by examining their pipes that connect, uh, that connect to the water system. And to see, you can sometimes take a quarter and sort of scratch off a little bit. And, and if it's soft and shiny, that kind of indicates you may have some lead. And if you do that check, Aaron, and suppose you find out, okay, I've got lead pipes. I imagine it's not that expensive to, to test the, the water levels, the lead levels, and find out whether your water's contaminated? Testing is a great idea, and some cities are making that available to residents. And other places, you can get a private test. Um, yes. And uh, then also, what, though, Aaron? Let's just suppose, suppose right here where I live in Connecticut, lead pipes, and suppose we find that our you know, water is contaminated. What, is, what, are, what are people do at that point? Well, okay, there are some uh, certified lead removal filters, so that's a good stopgap. But really the ultimate answer is to get rid of the lead service lines. And it can be very costly for homeowners. I think nationwide, uh, you know, they estimate it's about $5,000 per home. But in Chicago, they're saying that it can run up to $30,000. And a lot of times they're asking the homeowners to pay this money to do it themselves. So that's one thing the Infrastructure Act may change is to bring some of that money to help these homeowners. Taylor, in reporting out the story and putting it together, was there anything that surprised you along the way? I think, um, you know, as I mentioned before, I think the it's been the lead problem has been known for a while in the city, but I think um, Aaron's investigation um, into the numbers, into data that was you know publicly available on the Department of Water Management's website, um, the the city kind of came back and told um, after we ran the numbers, um, the city came back and told us um, that they never actually run an analysis of this information that was on our website, and this is um, five years worth of uh, water test results. So the city itself is not even running the numbers that they have available. That is remarkable. At Aaron, I assume that now that you've done this, you know, groundbreaking story, a lot more people are running the numbers. One would hope. We'd like to find out how many people are actually testing their water now, and in a few weeks, we'll ask for that information again, and and see if many more people are testing now to find out if their water is contaminated. And Aaron, in general, have the, the, the city officials in Chicago, have they been very transparent since you've been working on this? We've gotten almost nothing out of them. And uh, I believe the mayor gave a, uh, a major budget address the other day and she didn't even mention lead. Wow, that is, uh, that's, uh, that's frightening. Well, look, it's a, a terrific, uh, terrific series, I guess, that you guys are gonna have because I imagine there'll be all sorts of follow-ups as they do start to talk about it and look at the numbers. And again, the headline is hundreds of thousands of people in the city of Chicago, well, they may be drinking water that is so contaminated with lead that they're gonna face major health issues and the health issues can run the gamut, particularly susceptible are kids in the city of Chicago. Remarkable reporting, Erin McCormick, she is the independent data reporter for The Guardian and Taylor Moore, she's a freelance journalist in the city of Chicago. Uh, Taylor and Aaron, thank you both so much for doing this and, and terrific work. 
Thank you, David, very much. And that'll do it for this edition of The Conversation. On behalf of Mark Gillespie, Gina Kim, Asher Cofield, and the rest of the gang at the Young Turks, I'm David Schuster. Thanks for watching.